You may find this hard to believe, but 60 songs that explain the 90s, America's favorite poorly named music podcast is back with 30 more songs than 120 songs total. I am your host, Rob Harvilla, here to bring you more shrewd musical analysis, poignant nostalgic reveries, crude personal anecdotes, and rad special guests, all with even less restraint than usual. Join us once more on 60 Saws That Explain the 90s every Wednesday on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Andy Greenwald. I don't usually do these intros, but I'm thrilled to be doing it now. Joined by someone in the studio who's always in the studio staring at me with her own face eggs. <laughs> it's Kaya McMullen. Just mushy orbs just, in my face. They just, I get it. They freak people out. Kaya, thank you for joining me for this momentous day in American television history. We're recording Monday morning. Mm-hmm. Big night of finales last night. Mm-hmm. You know who doesn't know about that? Chris Ryan. No, he is in Paris, or I guess you could also say he is in Sweden angling for the uh, Waystar CEO position. I think what we can say is that President-elect Mencken has reservations about right. Chris's involvement in this podcast. So we needed to bring in a true blue American like you, Kai, who has not left the contiguous United States in quite some time. Someone who will be a swappable cog. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Um, so here's how it's going to work. Mm-hmm. You and I are going to talk about last night's Succession series finale with open eyes. Later in the show, our buddy Sean Fennessy is going to come on, and he and I are going to talk about the Barry finale, which also aired last night. I think it's unfair, honestly, that they were both on in the same night. But I agree. I feel like Barry. I mean, I haven't. I don't really watch Barry, um, but it really did get cannibalized pretty yeah. much completely. Totally unfair. And honestly, <laughs> as someone who watched both. An emotionally overwhelming experience. Yeah, that sounds like a bad time. I personally, after my succession watch, I turned on some Vanderpump rules just to like kind of wind down. Did did you need to take the edge off? Well, I mean, it's all like that succession ended in a way that was like happy. (laughs) No, so you didn't sit with it? You didn't stare out at a body of water near you? No, I didn't. I just stared at overfilled lips and... (laughs) Well, they were in Miami and (laughs) Vanderpump, so I guess that sort of counts. So you feel a little better. Yeah. Um, Let's get into it. Let's talk about the finale. Um, I thought it was an absolutely impressive and tonally correct way to end this series. I have to admit that while watching it, I mean, I think, I don't know if you share this experience, but I feel like watching series finales 
can often feel uncomfortable because every step that you're seeing on screen feels fraught. Mm-hmm. Everything feels a little bit heavier, a little bit weightier. You're looking for things. You're predicting jump scares or at least emotional right. jump scares around <laughs> the corner. I also think that this episode of Succession, very intentionally, was not a very fun hang episode of Succession. In the first hand, it did not have a party. No, unfortunately. It had to do a lot of A to B to well, C I would, to I would Jamaica call back Caroline, to D. Caroline's dinner a dinner party. Yeah, that's true. That was <laughs> lovely. Um, and by the way, I do think that we were robbed of Jonathan's pitch. I, I want to hear him out personally. <laughs> I think, do you think that was a backdoor pilot for season five? Well, maybe now that Kendall is out, he will go back to. <laughs> He'll come crawling back. Yeah. I think it was interesting that, well, look, let's go, let's go big picture here. Sure. Um, did you feel satisfied by this finale? I did because I think they ultimately all ended up back where they started. And I think with Succession, no one was ever going, none of the three siblings were ever going to win. And if one of them had come out on top, I would feel, I guess not like betrayed is a strong word, but I would just feel that is not right for like the arc of the show. Yeah, I was really pleased that I think... Look, Jesse Armstrong was writing from his heart and his his artistic sensibilities and his muse. He was not writing to combat clickbait SEO internet headlines in the United States. <laughs> However, I did feel like this episode was a heat-seeking missile built to destroy the who's going to win betting odds narrative. Yeah. Because this was never, ever a show about winning. This mm-hmm. was a show in which absolutely everyone lost, if you can accept the idea that everyone is still a billionaire. <laughs> This is a show has always been a show about how, despite having all of the advantages and the wealthiness in the world, mm-hmm. these people are not ever going to be satisfied. No, exactly. And I thought the most remarkable thing about the episode was just it, it was like a scouring brush. It mm-hmm. it didn't add, it didn't make anyone seem bigger, or it didn't burnish any characters. It stripped away, mm-hmm. and in a sense. The season, if not the show, did really end at the end of uh, episode 402 mm-hmm. when Logan said, I love you all, but you're not serious people. Yeah, that really did end up. And I mean, Roman brings that back in the final moment. He says, basically, we're all a joke. He says we're bullshit, which, you yeah. know, it's, it's an escalation because as we've learned over the last few weeks of Tom Shiv dynamics, there's always another floor. There's always mm-hmm. a subseller for any kind of conversation. But yeah, they are who they are. And the feeling that I had at the end of this, and I thought this was really striking and really dramatic, was um, we were watching the wrong show. For almost four seasons, I think there was a sense that this was a boardroom drama amongst legitimate players. Mm-hmm. When in fact, this was a show about broken children and the businessmen were doing the job in the other rooms. Right. The cameras wasn't, were not on them. And it made me think of something that I think, I think it's a, 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 a note I kept hitting last season which is that it felt like Logan was on a different show for much of it, that he would sort of be off camera Mm -hmm. for long stretches of time and we would be dealing with his wake, um, reacting to what was coming down from up high. I mean, one aspect of that was even the carry relationship, which was never explicitly put into the text. He was just, he was just behaving. And when we brought, when I brought that up again this season, talking to Chris, it was like, oh, was that a dry run to see what the show would be like without Logan? In fact, I think that was just a hint at what the show actually was, which was, they were never serious people. They yeah. were never involved in any of it. 
they were just flopping around cartoonishly in the margins. And and that was brought home to really devastating effect. And I think what probably the, the two most emotionally impactful scenes of the episode, one is when they're watching a video of, of a version of their father mm-hmm. they had never seen right. at a party they were not invited to. <laughs> Surrounded by people that he respected, more or less, yes. maybe minus Connor. But <laughs> no, but he allowed, I mean, that was really telling. And, and, you know, I think there might be some people coming out of this episode being like, oh, well, what about Connor didn't really get his little, um, you know, line through his T or dot on his eye, but his father let him make fun of him. Yeah. I thought that was remarkable. Yeah. His father let him see a softer side. And I mean, I guess if anybody really won, it was Connor. He gets the apartment. He gets the... <laughs> Potentially he gets Potentially. Slovenia. Potentially. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to come back from not getting Slovenia. I think that's a large point of the show. But but so there's that moment where they see what their father was like without them at a mm-hmm. party they weren't invited to. And then there's the scene that we're going to talk about in depth, and I'm sure everybody's talking about today, which is the scene outside of the board meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, and all I could think about during that entire sequence was this is the memory from the funeral. This is Shiv's memory from the funeral they were making noise outside of the room where the business was happening. Right. They were children. They didn't belong in the real room where the grown-ups were. They were just fucking around. And, and that's who they always were. Yeah, and that's really driven home by Kendall saying, I am the eldest boy. I am the eldest boy, <laughs> repeatedly. Now, I'm feeling some of that energy today because I am elder than Chris. Right. So I do feel that this is my mantle to take. Uh-huh. And I'm, I hope you're okay with it. I hope you, you won't Please, pull a by all means. walk out at, at the crucial moment. Um, okay, let's, before we get into any of the specific scenes, talk to me about how you, how we joined this episode. And did you have, because we haven't heard your thoughts about the season up to now, what were you expecting? And what were you predicting? I just, I think I didn't really go in expecting or predicting anything because I don't really think that's how they wanted people to perceive yes. the show. You know, I'm on Twitter a lot. I see a lot of, I saw a lot of tweets beforehand. That's brave. <laughs> It's braver by the day, I'll tell mm-hmm. you that. Um, but people being like, oh, well, here is a whole theory about why it might be Greg. Or here is like, oh, well, if you look at like this Easter egg and like this thing from the show, then like that's going to tell you like who's mm-hmm. going to actually succeed. And I just don't think it was ever about, as you said before, it was ever really about who was going to win. And so I think I almost kind of went into it and maybe this is being too like, gracious to myself now that I've already seen it, but like, I didn't really ever think anybody was going to win. Yeah. Yeah. It was never set up to be that. I think the, the, I think the closest to a wrong prediction that came out of this podcast was that Kendall would quote unquote, get it, but it would be a poison chalice and what's the point? And he's burned all of his family relations, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I think this is much, much more successful. I also was really struck by how, I mean, let's, it's such an unsentimental finale for an unsentimental show. So many finales, good ones, bad ones, mediocre ones, do something that kind of steer towards the fiction of their show. And what I mean is, like, they'll give characters, even minor characters, like a beautiful moment, mm. a send-off, like mm-hmm. a framing. Um, sometimes there's a needle drop, you know, that makes you feel a certain way. Right. Um, going through this finale, it was, I mean, it was quite long. It was a 90-minute finale. Yeah. It's not like I was thinking, oh, is that the last time we're going to see Jerry? Guess what? It was. <laughs> there wasn't any more to seeing Jerry, you know? It, it it was very much just like a moment in time with these people. But again, I think that was artfully done because mm-hmm. the characters like Jerry, 
and Frank and Carl. We never, I mean, we see, we've seen Jerry's husband a few times and, and Roman made fun of him. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, we didn't see their private lives because they had them. Because they were at their jobs. You know, it was only these kids who were these just sloppy messes giving, you know, giving everything of themselves all the time in front of everyone else. And I think that was, again, that was important. Frank and Carl's having a nice chat about getting richer and what else they want to do with their lives. They have futures. I'm not sure if the same could be said for the other characters on the show. Yeah, because it's like these people, these ancillary characters, this like C-suite, these are people who have actually earned their place at the company. And so you have to assume they have some sort of business acumen. Whereas the kids have always just been like, this is my birthright to be here. And I'm. this is what I'm owed. Yeah, bloodline. Um, it comes down to bloodline. That was gnarly. But yeah, I do think what you're hitting on here where it's like they didn't feel this need to give everybody like a nice send off and like reaffirm that like pe- these people are worth watching in some way was different than other past like Stevens and finales. I think it worked really well here because, you know, again, this show was never about like having likable people on the screen. Yeah, and and also, I, I I don't know if I've ever said this about uh, a major series finale before, but it did two things at the same time, kind of contradictory things. It really could have kept going. It could have kept going on and on and on. Yeah. But it very clearly was out of the type of gas that Jesse Armstrong likes to use, meaning that's the point. The point is that these main characters will never be happy. They will mm-hmm. never have the holes inside of them, the psychological holes inside of them filled. And it's best to just pull the plug. Yeah, because it is interesting. I mean, there's definitely a lot of cases to be made about like what could have been with another season. And like, honestly, even with the way that they have left everybody set up in this finale at the end, it's like, I'm sure they're more than easily could have mapped out a season five from there. And it would have been interesting and would have been like compelling TV to watch. But I guess it would have essentially been the same thing of the siblings going at it, trying to make alliances, having the alliances broken. For a second, it looks like Kendall might win and he's finally done it. And then it's all taken away from him at the last second. There's a lot of art in how you choose to walk away and how you choose to leave us. Um, Which is also why I kind of reject any clickbaiting idea that Tom won. Does that, like, is Tom going to keep this job? What is Tom's reason for having this job? What is his stability in this job? It's nonsense. There is none. And the way he pitches himself is, I am replaceable. I will do whatever you say. And so it's like, who's to say I'm that... I'm a pain sponge. Yeah, that Tom is not going to get replaced just as fast as he replaced Shiv. Let's go through some sibling stuff, and then we sure. can talk about the the Tom and the Matson and the, the sticker on Greg's forehead. Um... <laughs> Let's start with Roman, who, as we learn at the beginning of the episode, has uh, fled his. Well, he he said he fought the Antifa protester to a draw. I Did don't. Not. I don't think that's the case. <laughs> um, I think that the referees had a different view of that fight. He is holed up with his mother and Peter in what I believe is Jamaica. Has the, have you read any? I thought they said it was Barbados. Barbados. Thank yes. you. Yeah, I only thought Jamaica because the Pink Floyd thing, and I was like, oh. Mm. Pink Floyd. I just assume like musician, English musicians love to record in Jamaica. Yeah. But I didn't get a heavy Jamaica vibe. Barbados makes more sense. I didn't even really get a heavy Barbados vibe. It seemed a little bit rockier, but I mean. I've never been to Barbados. I, I have so. not either. And I don't frequent a lot of 
islands I, that I'm sure. <laughs> I think Chris is going there next, so maybe okay. he can let us know. Live from Barbados. Uh, um, also, I just, you know, there's going to be, there has been a lot of ink spilled and there will be a lot of ink spilled in the days and weeks to come from these actors being like, oh, I'm so grateful for this opportunity. It was a great, what a great thing for my career and for my life. Harriet Walter, who plays Caroline, imagine just being a successful, talented, working English actor, getting this gig, and then the last part of the gig is, hey, can you come to the tropics to hang out at a <laughs> villa for a week to film some scenes? I, I mean, pretty sweet gig. And also play this um, major like yeah. power role in basically the final episode where Caroline is kind of the one being like, yes, I guess you can come see Roman. And yes, and she's kind of like, pulling the strings just a little bit and really is like a linchpin in this episode. And is given a different shade in this episode of sadness. You know, yeah. I, I think that when she sees the children being happy and we'll get to that scene, she's not someone who betrays much emotion and clearly that has added to the damage of the children. But there is a palpable sense of why can't it just be like this? There's always another board meeting to rush off to. How important it must feel to be a master of the universe. And yet... To me, she kind of strikes me as someone who... They're the type of people who have always grown up with money. And so they like to pretend or play the game that like actually money doesn't matter. And I could be happy with none. And mm -hmm. like, oh, all you silly business things. I can't believe you're like out there trying to get money. Because they see that kind of like gauche. I think that's also very English traditionally, right? Like, not, yeah. not speaking about, you don't speak about where the money came from. Right. You just, oh, it's embarrassing. Um, well, it's not embarrassing. It's just embarrassing to speak of it. Having it is, I imagine, pretty great. Um, and so the Roman we see here is a little bit different than the last Roman we saw, who was a little bit punchy and high yeah. on um, neo-fascism <laughs> and getting his teeth kicked in on the streets of Manhattan. I guess the question I have about his presence here, okay, so he's defeated. He's like a shell of himself. His, he's like a scared little boy. Yes. As, you know, the emotion that he was denying by pre-grieving is now just at the forefront. And he needs some help. And he probably needs some more time in Barbados and not at a board meeting. There's a version of this, and I wonder if you agree with this. I might just be playing devil's advocate here. But is he, is Roman's story done too soon? Like, his storyline was basically done in a lot of ways, right? Like, mm -hmm. he reached his end place. Maybe that's a sign, maybe it's interesting because every character reached their end place at a different moment in this episode. But he was done and nobody was listening or noticing. Yeah, I, I feel like I came away with the most questions about Roman's storyline. And I also, but I also do think two out of the three of them, I think Roman always wanted it the least. Yeah. And wanted more so for them to just maybe get along and have that familial bond I think the, like, scene that I left with the most questions with was, like, that end scene between him and Kendall, where he kind of, like, pops his stitches. Yeah. Okay. We should we could talk about that scene. I agree. So he's—Roman is a walking open nerve, um, right. I think, and we, we should talk about the delicious milkshake scene. Um, <laughs> Vitamix Blenders having a role on Succession and Barry. Not sure if you saw that. Oh, but, okay. Yeah. I don't know if they— Maybe they're one of the sponsors. Yeah, maybe of that's Max. a new Max spawn. Vitamax. Vitamax. See? <laughs> that one's free, <laughs> Casey. Um, but yeah, I, I I think, and by the way, as I referenced last week or, or the other day, like Roman might not be the youngest sibling, or so we're told, but <laughs> right. he certainly behaves that he way. He kind of is. And the way they treat him kind of is. I mean, they 
he's the most transparent, right? Like he is happiest, truly happy when they are all getting along, when he has mm-hmm. some semblance of a family, even if it's this, you know, its relationship to a family is the same as like a wire mesh monkey mother is to an actual <laughs> monkey in that famous horrible psychological torture experiment that they did to baby monkeys. People know about that, right? Um, we can talk more about that offline. I'm not Great point. super See, familiar. This is, Kaya, this is why you run a tight ship. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, Google wire mesh monkey. Anyway, what he wants and what he needs are pretty clear. And that moment in uh, Kendall's office is really fraught and probably deserving of its own psychologically inclined podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, because of what changes in the dynamic with all of them when Kendall is in his father's office. Right, when they see him sitting in the chair. That, and we'll talk about that in when we speak more directly about Shiv, but like, Roman sees Jerry, and again, there is no longer any, uh, the walls aren't holding. Mm-hmm. The machinery, the circuitry that he built to protect himself from what he does and what he actually feels is gone. And so in that moment, he feels, I guess, overwhelming. What, guilt, shame, vulnerability. Uh, well, he's like, I don't want... Legal jeopardy. Yeah, I don't... Essentially, he's like, I don't want Jerry to see me like this, to see... Or I don't want everybody to see me with, like, this gash in my head. Right. So what it becomes is then outward, right? Like, he, mm-hmm. he's worried that these the wounds are mirrors... and Not mirrors, they're windows into the wounds that he's actually now feeling internally. Right. And he can't stop talking about that. But there's also the flip side of that, which is him saying... I don't look bad enough. Like, I need to be worse for them to understand why I can't be in charge, why I can't be you, why I can't be a man in this broken kingdom. Right. Yeah, so that's where I got a little bit, like, confused. Or, like, and so the way I understood it was that he's, like, I'm too healed now. People are going to wonder why it's not me, why it's you instead. And so then I guess... Kendall reopens his so wound. I, I, so that I think there's I think it's just incredibly dense moment because yeah. what Kendall is good at, at least in terms of his baby brother, and we saw this in the previous episode, is he knows what his brother needs. And what his brother needs at that moment is to be comforted mm-hmm. on some level. Mm-hmm. And he does with a physical embrace, or as Roman calls it, that huggy thing. <laughs> he doesn't call it in that moment. Also, it's been established that Roman has some connection with pain and being humiliated and being hurt, um, as he was often in in his childhood. Mm -hmm. And so it's all of it all at once. It's his brother comforting him and putting him in a familiar role, I believe. Would it almost be like Kendall taking on the Logan role, not just in CEO, but also in... Yeah, and I think we saw that at the end of the previous episode, right? Where he's just like, look, you fucked it. Yeah. You know, uh, about about his speech um, or his eulogy or his aborted eulogy. It, it's a lot of things. And it it and it then it sort of ventures almost into the biblical. Like he just has a he has a, a wound in that moment that can't stop bleeding. Yeah. Um, in a way, it would may have been. The episode was by and large pretty straightforward. That was almost the most artistic indulgence mm-hmm. or aesthetic indulgence that, that that it leaned into. I wasn't entirely sure about that. But whatever the case, Roman was, it's weird to say he was pacified, but he was kind of at peace. You know, the things that he says in the, the, the ultimate scene, mm-hmm. you know, well, 
horrific what he says when he's when he's just right. parroting Logan's words about Kendall's children. Yeah. But he has that face that like people he has the face that people have at the end of movies where they're okay getting beaten to death. <laughs> now again, I don't know if you've seen those movies. You can Google them. Um, maybe don't. But he um he he he's in a very nihilistic place that they're that they're all bullshit and and this this stitch is holding it together we're the last thing holding it together right for mm-hmm. him um he did lick the cheese though he did lick the, yeah should we go back to just that I I feel like the both the water scene with Shiv mm-hmm. and Roman mimicking Kendall and if they <laughs> and what his response would be and then like. <laughs> swimming out to him and then that turning in to this like weird sibling bonding milkshake scene it you guys have called them like McBain moments in the past yes. and that very much was that they were going one. to murder him in one way just not the yeah. way they're joking about yeah it. yeah and also there are these beautiful opportunities for again this this show is it is what it is and they're all adults but you have to wonder if you, you don't have to wonder. I think you can assume that that Jesse knew what he was doing when he gave Sarah Snook and Kieran Culkin a chance to make fun of Jeremy Strong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, that kind of dynamic where they love each other and they love being together, but they also hate being together, mm-hmm. which has leaked out or not leaked out, especially, you know, from Brian Cox gushes out in the press, um, it has benefited the show enormously. It's just has yeah. benefited the show in terms of that's very strange and unique dynamic that the three of them have. So that the moment of their absolute celebration their happiest moment when they're making a meal fit for a king um there's joy in sadism right i mean it's pretty messed up but at the same time that is also the happiest kendall has ever been yeah he he, he is boyish his every, he looks dopey and again this is a testament i think to jeremy strong's performance because he is you wouldn't know this if you're reading the gq stories but when you see the way he performs he is egoless when he is acting Mm-hmm. He does not care what he looks like, and I don't think he's self-aware at all in those moments, you know? And he just has the dopiest, goofiest <laughs> little kid face Yeah, as he's drinking something that, you know, I think would definitely make him throw up, <laughs> if not hospitalize him. And you have to wonder if, like, the dumping it on his head was scripted or not. I assume yeah, so. Yeah, well, uh, I guess— right after they finished filming that scene. I think that was one of the final scenes they filmed. They, um, Sarah Snook and Karen Culkin shaved his head. Mm. Um, oh, that was it maybe. They, maybe they finished filming on the island. I think so because Kieran's wearing that color block uh, uh, t-shirt. Also again, very little boyish. Um, right. And they shaved Jeremy Strong's head and then I think Kieran like smashes an egg on it or something. Sure, I'm sure. All done with love. <laughs> yeah. No hostility whatsoever. Okay, so so the Roman part of it, I mean, I you know, I think Karen Culkin was incredible in this episode. Yeah. I think that it was a really interesting opportunity for him because for as, as amazing as he's been, there are moments throughout the course of the series, there are moments where I'm like, he's amazing at doing the things that only Karen Culkin can do. Mm-hmm. Again, great shows, right to great actors. And it's using up every bit of that kind of, snarky meta I'm saying this but I'm saying that I'm hugging you but I'm hitting you kind of energy I'm just like fundamentally uncomfortable in my own body <laughs> yeah and we're, and I'm gonna live in that for mm-hmm. your entertainment when the, he comes out at his mom's he is physically different yeah 
And it was a really nice opportunity for him to remind us that he is a very talented performer making choices, um, even as the, you know, it, the, the, the ticks went away, right? Because mm-hmm. the misery had f- taken root inside of him. I want to talk about the shiv part. Um, right. Because in my first viewing, I'm pretending I've seen it multiple times. I did check out <laughs> one or two scenes again. I only saw it once. I will watch it again. But her flip-flopping and then ultimate decision that she makes... I was struggling with a little bit with tracking it. Yeah. I'll be, I'll be honest. I think that I, I, was the second major question I left mm-hmm. is why why did she do that? So let's talk about where we where we join her mm-hmm. and she is flying high. You want to talk about McBain moments. Yeah. Anytime someone on the show <laughs> announces that they're a winner or that they're a good you person, could, you could pretty, probably Yeah, pretty sure they're not going to win. <laughs> you could pretty reliably assume that they're not. Um yeah, so she shows up again, it's unclear whether she is what it, what is she happiest about? Is she happiest about becoming the CEO of Waystar Gojo, or is she happiest about being able to look Kendall in the face and be like, "You fucking suck, I won." Probably the latter, honestly. If we're, yeah, I think it would be giving her too much credit to say that she is singularly happy because she feels like she accomplished something, like professionally, yeah. Versus she is happy because she fucked over her brother. So the the the. The B side of what's going on with Shiv is, you know, again, I, 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 this is not really a nitpick, but it's just a question to ask. Like, is Lucas Matson good at business? Because I do think there was probably this wouldn't have worked for the dramatic finale of the se- of the series Succession. So I'm okay with it. I want to be very clear, but I just feel like he probably could have made it 24 hours without naming a CEO or without actively interviewing 10 other people for the position yeah. that was inevitably going to leak unless it was intentional. And that the one moment that I had of remove in this episode was him saying one thing to Shiv then immediately going behind her back and then the whole scene with Tom which we'll speak about. I was like is this is this performance art? Is this is he intentionally doing this to destabilize something because otherwise it imperiled his entire deal. And we then we get that one scene of Skarsgård being like, battle stations, go, go. Like he's the captain of the fucking Starship Enterprise. Right, yeah. Um, seemed odd. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. And, you know, I I personally don't have a lot of business. Oh. Uh, oh, now you tell me. That is why you're sitting in that chair right now. <laughs> but yeah, I, I could, I, I would agree with you. I think that is probably not the smartest move on his part. I thought it was an incredible troll job that, it did seem for a moment that Lawrence from Valter was going to come roaring back. And I mean, this has no disrespect to the actor or the character, but, you know, great, truly great shows just roll over, mistakes is too strong a word, but non-fruitful yeah. commitments and storylines. And Lawrence was, uh, the actor who played Lawrence was credited cast member in the first season. And there was a sense that he was going to be a major part of the story before they even know, knew totally what the story was. He was not. The callback was nice for like the real success heads, but I was like, are they doing this? That would kind of be incredible. I respect the flex to not even bother showing him, just to name him. He may have just not been available. He might have been like, you know what? Fool me once, <laughs> shame on me. <laughs> but that said, this brings up to the, you know, we should track follow this Gojo thread. Isn't Lawrence a better choice than Tom? Isn't literally anyone else a better choice than Tom? Talk to me about this. I don't know. I mean, if you want someone who will just do your bidding, and I think 
Matson says, who knows if this is actually true, but it seems like he starts to want to oust Shiv after it's betrayed in that magazine profile or that cartoon yes, that, that Shiv is the, pulling the strings. He doesn't, he's like, haha, we all like the jokes, but none of these people like jokes. And it also seems pretty clear that Matson is like a raging sexist. Um, yes. So. <laughs> yes. And potential sex offender as well. Yeah. Yeah. That too. That too. Um, it, it's also. You know, I, I think this would need multiple viewings to parse, but like for as new media as Madsen is and as European and as non-conventional, Logan made the deal with him. Logan right. said, you are the one who should get this. And that means on some level, I mean, yes, the big takeaway is that he never wanted his children to get it and mm-hmm. he wanted to rid this whole thing from them and keep it away from them. And that was, he got his wish despite the underlying crossout saga. But he also may have recognized something in Madsen that he found similar or that yeah. he connected to. And I don't think there was enough real estate in this season or certainly in this episode to explore that, but mm-hmm. willing to laugh at a joke until he murders the person making the joke, the <laughs> ultimately just wants to go off of his own gut and so keeps a very strange inner circle that doesn't really make a lot of sense from the outside, <laughs> yeah. but exists purely to service this raging ego. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's something that Shiv absolutely whiffed on and didn't understand. They never thought of him as a formidable opponent, even though their father clearly thought he was a, yeah. not a worthwhile person, but a worthwhile um, business Yeah, that's associate. a good point. Um, so, Greg? <laughs> Greg, <laughs> I do, I really do respect that Greg, I guess Greg would be like a Gen Zer, and so he is the one who's like, Hey, you know, they have this nifty new technology now where you can just record people's conversations. They'll translate it live for you. I thought that was pretty that that I mean that that was the smartest thing Greg has done in four seasons. Yeah, well then he uh, almost immediately turns around and uh almost fucks himself. I, I think I'm misquoting it, but he says something like, if you give me something amazing, <laughs> can I if I if I give you something amazing, can I have something incredible? Yeah. Or something like that. Um it's I mean, all of this just leaks like a sieve, but it does. So, so Shiv's journey. I mean, again, this is maybe this is we should praise the script, not worry about the details. But like to get Shiv to do not one but two complete one eighties in a ninety minute episode is remarkable. Mm-hmm. To the fact that we are basically accepting it is also remarkable. Yeah. The first one, I think, makes sense. Because every yeah. time these children go out into the world and attempt to do anything, the world spanks them, slaps them, humiliates them. And then they go back to their natural order where they can be in an incredibly expensive, beautiful place and say incredibly hurtful, insane things to each other. And life goes on. And pretend to have some sort of like actual power and yes. knowledge. Yes. And because they all have sway over each other mm-hmm. in their kind of fucked up little and circuit. It- they all, to some extent, take each other seriously as business <laughs> people because if they're not taking each other seriously as business people, then they are definitely themselves not serious business people. There's a super cut to be made and probably, you know, we're recording this Monday. It's almost, it's lunchtime because someone probably has already made it. But if you just took the faces that other business characters make when the kids enter or leave the room, it's telling you the story of the show. Mm-hmm whether it's Stewie, whether it's Frank, I mean, Carl, Jerry, Matson, any of them, they're not serious people. No. They're not serious people, but our, but we have been embedded with them. You know what I mean? It, it, it's really 
it's a really kind of an interesting rope-a-dope. It was never hidden. Yeah. But I think in that way, it's it's really a, a, a credit to Jesse's perspective on this, right? Because he knows how the machine of television works, and he knows that it is an empathy-creating device. Mm-hmm. And so even, I'm sure people like us who are sitting in this room, we've been podcasting, we've been talking about it, we've been analyzing it, we've been psychoanalyzing it, it you kind of feel for them in a way. You know, yeah. you kind of do. I think what's really interesting about where we are in the finale, and then we, we can get back into the, the specifics, is there's a none of these people who I'm going to talk about, these are not straw people, but they also are not listening to this podcast. But I know that there's an, a, a segment of the audience that has been like, I'm not going to watch Succession because I don't want to watch a show about that humanizes bad people mm-hmm. or that illustrates bad people. And I think that the genius of the show is that it has always understood that when we talk about humanizing figures or types of people, it doesn't mean making them good. It doesn't Mm -hmm. mean making them likable or worthwhile. It means making them relatable. Yeah. To humanize something is to make it, is to create empathy and understanding. And that's what made the inevitable loss in this episode just resonate. Because you understand why they are so broken. You understand why they cannot change or get out of their own way. And you just have to watch it happen. So does Shiv, does she decide to, I've seen a couple of different theories about why she ultimately decides to backstab, or I guess, you know, go against Kendall. I think the one that I've seen that gives her the most credit, which I don't think is true, is that she's trying to like protect Kendall from himself and Mm -hmm. she doesn't want Kendall to end up like their father. And so that's why she does it. I don't think that's true. I think that would be, painting her as too, like, compassionate yeah. <laughs> of a person. Um, then another one I've seen is that she had still, she was on the fence. She still hadn't made up her mind. They're in the boardroom and she says, or they're in the conference room and she says, well, Kendall, you killed someone. Yeah. And so I can't ultimately trust you. And then when he's like, no, no, I didn't. I lied. That sort of confirms to her that like, oh, you're not, you can't do this. I think that ultimately she just chose which person to side with where she thought she could actually maintain the most power and she still thinks she has the most power and control over Tom. And so if she sides with Tom as CEO, she can like pull the strings. I think this is a good thing, not a bad thing, that there's truth in every one of those points of view. I was having a hard time keeping up with it because if you watch from when they return from Barbados to the crucial moment in the boardroom. Also, how funny is it that they all three take separate cars to go I, to the Exactly. I thought about that too. They all get in their own cars. <laughs> I was like, do, is it just like an ego thing? Do they got to make some phone calls? They're so good at play acting, yeah. you know, this part. It also maybe was foreshadowing in a way how things were going to mm-hmm. break up and go. There are two pivot points that could be seen as cause and effect to what happens at the end. One is the scene with Tom mm-hmm. when they're going through uh, Logan's townhouse and they're, you know, some things are going to Slovenia, some things are being taken away, and there's the cow print cow. I mean, one last, one last I want for Willa, Willa to have her cow print couch and for Connor to be <laughs> miles and miles away. It's going to be, it's going to work for them. It's going to work for them. I think those kids have got it made. Um, so there's the Tom thing where he's like, it's going to be me. Mm-hmm. Again, I should rewatch it because at that moment, I was like, oh, everyone is being set up for disappointment because, of Mm -hmm. course, it's not going to be him. Was, weirdly. Um, So that creates a bunch of possibilities. 
to me, I never see the through line to uh, now I'm going to go against Kendall because that will empower Tom and I'm still married to Tom. Mm-hmm. I think that the the wound that's still resonating with her and it gets supplanted by the Lucas isn't going to actually make good on his offer to make me CEO mm-hmm. wound. But when she's has that very tender phone call, you know, early in the episode, right. tender for them, where it's just like maybe once we've said everything, there's nothing, you know, maybe honesty is a place that you can build a real relationship from, from the ashes of everything before. And and she's like, would you like to give that a try? And he's like, I don't know. Yeah. I, I think that that doesn't create a deep firmament between them in that moment. Yeah. I think the secondary part, which again, I didn't, I don't feel like I was tracking where Mark Mylod was putting his camera or at least in the edit what they decided on. Kendall's behavior in Logan's office seems particularly triggering as well. Yeah. Putting his feet up, joking around, offering chairmanships to his prep school buddy, Stewie. Right. Um, That whole (laughs) vibe, right? And in that moment, you could think that— They're like, we've created a monster. We've created a monster, and we've perpetuated a system of monstrosity. (laughs) You know, um, there's—the mind goes back to a scene— Caroline Shiv scenes also underrated classics throughout the the series. Mm -hmm. And— Really, like, you people were raised by wolves. (laughs) Yeah, right? But there's the scene—I think it was in the wedding, or when they're there for the wedding, not Mm -hmm. actually during the wedding, uh, at the end of— Caroline's wedding at the end of season three, when they're sort of talking about what the Caroline Logan relationship was about, and you sort of are made to understand that you know Logan was a brute. Mm-hmm. Logan came from nothing, um, shivering, silent in a boat, waiting to be killed by Nazis, and then he married into the aristocracy. It gave him yeah. class. It gave him something, and this realization that um, Tom, all the things that she was criticizing Tom for, she was a Caroline. She was Tom's Caroline. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. All the stuff like you, you know, you're you're ambitious, you're a hick, you're provincial. That she somehow just she thought she was raging against the machine, but she also has just only Always, ever yeah. been part of the machine. Yeah, I think it's also an incredible misread of, you know, maybe maybe she and her brothers are too English ultimately, not just because they say yeah in the middle of sentences, but. Um, because they somehow think of, they, they tie success to primogeniture, like their fucking royal family, when the story of America is Logan Roy. The story of America mm-hmm. is Tom Wamsgans being like, you know what, I like nice things, and I'm going to debase myself 24-7 in pursuit of it. Like, yeah. The reason he, I mean, he don't, nobody deserves anything on this fucking nightmare world of a show, <laughs> but he's doing the job, right? Like, he is doing the job which is to worry about everything and try to execute his enemies all the time. Yeah, I kind of feel like we've only, almost only seen Tom actually working this entire season and actually, like, stress out about work, whereas the kids are just, like, yeah. making some phone calls. I, I, I think also it goes back to what we were saying a moment ago about, like, how the dynamic within the family actually operates, which is it's the only place they feel safe is when they are all splashing around in the water trying to drown each other. Yeah. And there's that. And, and I think you can make other side arguments that like, maybe Siobhan has like a moment of clarity that this is what her father wanted. And she did not, he did not want Kendall to do it. He knew Kendall couldn't do it. And that's, let's, we're all bullshit. It's like, it's a, yeah. it's like that, the Roman uh, uh, disease suddenly <laughs> creeps through all of them, you know, slowly. But I think more than anything else, it's just like, it's the story of the, um, you know, the story of the, uh, the scorpion and the frog. Mm-hmm. Um, 
when the scorpion wants to cross the water and the frog's like, I won't do that because you're going to kill me because you're a scorpion. And the scorpion's like, but if I stab you in the water, um, we'll both die. And the frog's like, great point. And they make it halfway across the water and the scorpion stings the frog. And the frog's like, why did you do this? We're going to die. And the scorpion's like, I am who I am. Um, world's worst telling of a folktale on a minute 45 of a podcast. But that's who they are. Yeah, It's who they are. And it's what, it's their... It's the only way they feel safe. They don't feel safe with their parents. They don't feel safe with their loved ones. They don't have loved ones. They just have each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you create, if you are comfortable with chaos, the only way to feel comfortable is to create more chaos. Yeah. So we see that last turn. And then there's the Kendall. Kendall of it. Kendall of it all. The Kendall of it all. Um, Bravura, Jeremy Strong performance throughout. Um, really remarkable. <sighs> yeah. it's. I know it's like ultimately Emmys don't matter and whatnot, but... It's very tough. They're, this field that they are creating for themselves at the Emmys. I know. I think Kieran's got an inside shot, actually. I kind of think I can, so. I can see that. I can make an argument. But as we've said many times throughout the coverage of the show, like Jeremy Strong's performance is completely unique in the history yeah. of television performances. It is so deep. It is so layered that I still feel like we can't. I, I don't feel like I fully appreciated it because you almost take it for granted. Mm-hmm. He is as natural in these dynamics and in these scenes as the Hudson River is. Like, you just, it, well, he's there. Lots you know? of water moments with her Kendall. Let's, I mean, we could talk about his quote-unquote arc, but he didn't really have one. It was just, he was pretty much at the top, and then he just fell. Yeah. And he just fell all the way down like he's in the fucking Mad Men opening credits. What did you make of... His, so he he screams at Shiv. He tries to um, rip out his brother's eyeballs. <laughs> and then he disheveled, goes back into the boardroom to say, like, maybe we can stall. And Frank's like, no, this it's is, done. Things are done. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, him, little man grasping at straws, you know, and he just is not ready to admit that, once again, he got played. and. I don't, if we are like pretending there was going to be a final season, I don't think that Kendall, I think, has such an ego that he doesn't strike me as someone who was just going to like accept his fate. I mean, he says it in this final closing thing. He's like, I am a cog that would only fit this position. Yeah. And I'm uniquely designed to do this. This is the only thing that's going to work for me. And so he, he, he's surprisingly self aware. I mean, he says that. My father took me to the candy kitchen and on you know in Long Island or in the Hamptons and was like, "I want it to be you." And he's he understands that's a terrible thing to do to a child. Yeah. Um. But his more than anyone else, we understand the the brokenness and the flaws, but you can't excuse them or forgive them. No, and I mean he says truly horrendous things in like the basically last five minutes, and I think that's kind of too like. They probably did that to reaffirm, like, yeah. don't feel bad for this guy. No, also, when you say to other people, if you don't give me what I want, I'm going to end myself. I'm going to mm-hmm. end everything. I, it's only, that, is, that is not a, that's not a healthy communication no. or behavior. I, I think that um, we mentioned it uh, last week in the funeral episode, but remember who this guy is when he's not on top. Remember who he is when mm-hmm. he doesn't get what he wants. Mm-hmm. And... He's screaming at his ex-wife uh, with the children in the car. And yeah. as we found out, the actors were in the car. He, He's calling Jess's replacement new Jess. Yeah. Oh, my God. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's 
it's bad. Mm-hmm. It's bad. And everyone in that boardroom understands that it's bad um, and that it's time to to move on. His, I thought it was interesting. Again, I, I think that, and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to him about this, but like Jesse knows what he's doing and he knows that to film those scenes in those glass cubes with all those windows from such a great height that when it's taken away from Kendall, when it's ripped away from him, our kind of basic ass American TV brains are like, who's going to kill himself? Yeah, I know. And for a second when he's walking like so mm-hmm. close to the window, it did yes. like pass my mind. It's I, like, oh, he could just jump. I started just reaching in the history banks of TV when he was like pressing the button for the elevator. I'm like, is this going to be an LA law? And I feel like most of our viewers probably, viewers, we don't have any viewers. Most of our listeners don't even remember that like famously a character once stepped into an empty elevator shaft. Um, what I thought was really incredible about the final moments was that he had, like many of us, he was the architect of his own suffering. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be his father so badly, he put himself back in the prison that his father put himself in. Colin, his father's quote-unquote best friend, who was introduced in the show basically as the security fixer mm-hmm. who kind of made the problem of the dead kid go away mm-hmm. and then lore- and then reminded Kendall of that in a very threatening manner on express orders from his father. Right. Kendall brought him back. Kendall intentionally went up to him and said, come back and be this person for me, thinking that he would be his father when he's mm-hmm. only ever going to be his father's son. Yep. So there's that intense surveillance at the end. When he's leaving and you're like, well, is he going to throw himself in the river? Is he going to jump in front of traffic? He's just a security guard who's going to stop him. He's not yeah. free to make choices about his own bodily right. health or autonomy in that moment. And then more than anything else, that final shot, I really, really respected and loved because if we had seen the water, it would have suggested hope, right? Or transformation or movement, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of... Google water water metaphors. I'm really putting people to work on their laptop. Um, but we didn't get that. We were we were instead on the side angle shot, right? Mm-hmm. Where he is absolutely trapped yeah. in, in between. He's not a part of the city. The towers of glass and where, where the great titans of industry <laughs> kept in their ships. And he's not free in the water. He's just trapped with himself. And I thought that was a really beautiful and artistic way to end a show that, as we've been alluding to, the business of the show could keep spinning on for multiple seasons. This could be a Showtime show yeah. in different hands. And so how were they going to leave us with a sense of deep existential rot <laughs> while knowing that the you know the story of this company and these people isn't over? And I thought that they, they found it. At first, it sort of took my breath away that that was it. Mm-hmm. And then it made sense to me. It was correct. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I think that's a good point. Were there any, in your mind, this is, I don't know, always this seems a little like uh, ungrateful to, to go down this road, but were there any um, loose ends? Were there any questions that you had? This isn't, this wasn't lost, but I mean, yeah. but w- were there things that you wished had gotten more screen time or more resolution? I don't think so, no. I think yeah. that, I think if you're just taking it as like this was supposed to be sort of an ambiguous ending and we weren't supposed to leave feeling satisfied with like little motifs of each character being like, and this is how they're going to end up. And like now they're going to be happy and satisfied. And so, yeah, I feel like no, maybe I'll have, as I think about it more in the next few days, I'll change my mind. But I I agree. I would have, I mean, I I love 
I love Jerry and Tom and Carl. I, I, th- those are all characters that I wish we could spend more time with. But um, I really admire the show's commitment to just being a bulwark against the the desire to give us resolution on everything. Yeah. To chase certainty. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that the show ultimately was pretty aligned with human behavior. Um, you know, and that it's people don't really change. And there's always another level down you can go. It can always get worse and people stay in those situations. You know, they stay trapped. We stay trapped yeah. within ourselves. I think it may have come slightly as a surprise or tonally jarring that this wasn't a satire. It was quite satirical about many things related to America or capitalism mm-hmm. or business or what have you. But it was a tragedy in the yeah. end. You know, I, I, it was a very heavy ending. And I think the heaviness was really the impact with, I mean, rea- it's not reality, it's a fictional show. But once the illusion broke, not just for the characters, because that happened in stages, but almost for the audience, right? Like they they made a king on television. They made a president mm-hmm. through television. Mm-hmm. It is the most performative malarkey ever, and it made them feel like gods. And from that moment on, they were cast out, and they were just... Yeah. Just keep trapped in a prison of their own making. Trapped in a prison of their own making. And, um, you know, I, I, we haven't even talked about the last Shiv and Tom beat. Um <laughs> The world's, you don't think they're destined for a happy marriage? The world's chilliest handhold. I would love to see, like, in the script, how that was written. You know, she lays her hand on top of his, but they do not clasp. Like, it yeah. is so rough. It's Yeah, it's a lot of, like, emotion and just, like, feeling portrayed in, like, one simple hand movement. Um, what, what do you make of that? Like, because... I still haven't thought my way through this at all, but you, you, you've you heard me for the last few weeks being like, what's going on with Shiv being some sort of moral arbiter or at least having more sense than her brothers? And is it connected to this pregnancy? None of that really came to pass, which I was yeah. glad about. I don't mm-hmm. think that made a lot of sense. Ultimately, is she acquiescing into the prison that we keep alluding to? Because... Clearly, one thing she is comfortable with is being in proximity to power. power. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's just a comfortable place for her is being sort of next to power. And I mean, I guess when she started this season, she was working as like a Democratic operative. And Mm -hmm. I think in the series, right? In like the very beginning. Sorry. Yeah, the series. And I think maybe in her head, she's like, I can still make like change to ATN if I'm like working alongside Tom I I think it's but I also think on a human level it's just so lonely right yeah she's she's totally alone I think she's destined to end up sort of like Caroline is what we're supposed to be left with yeah although Caroline's doing all right (laughs) I mean she's Maybe not mom of the year, but she seems to enjoy. She thinks Peter's She has silly, enough but delusion to think that. <laughs> she seems, she has a lot of nice real yeah. estate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I I really, I keep coming back to that. When when they're wandering through the, the house and they're going to put stickers on things and whatever, and it's a great, you know, it's it's also doubling. This is also just. The great reallocation. It, it's hard to, yes, it's hard to talk about economy again when it's a 90 minute finale, but to do a lot of things in each of the opportunities that you have. So that scene was doing 
you know, it was it was a funny conceit. It was uh, addressing something that had been open ended. It's Connor and Willa's last mm-hmm. moment on the show. And then they wander into a video playing. And I'm like, this seems a little convenient. Yeah. Uh, and, and then, you know, it was a, like a sort of shaky cell phone video. You're watching it at a weird angle. But it really was remarkable because all of that functioned as distancing on purpose. They were so far from that dinner. Yeah. Both because they weren't invited, both because it's in the past, both because the main person in it is dead and those days are over, but also just the way it was shot, you know, like that they were somehow spying on it. One thing that really stuck out to me in that scene was so when Roman is sitting on the floor and he's having this emotional Mm -hmm. reaction and then Shiv kind of touches Roman and then Kendall kind of touches Shiv, Mm -hmm. that reminded me a lot of, I think it was last... It was the season yeah, finale yeah. In, the, in the Italian dust. Right, when Kendall is admitting that he killed that man and Roman kind of touches Kendall yeah. and then Shiv and it's like, this is how they... This is the closest they can come to displaying like any com- sort of physical affection. And they're a completed circuit. Yeah. They just pour their bullshit into each other mm-hmm. and they they make sense. That's, that's the sad yeah. tragedy of it, that... If we were shipping anyone, it was that throuple. Well, if we're shipping anyone, we're shipping Tom and Greg. <laughs> you know, which almost took a turn. I know. They had a slap fight. Yeah. I thought it was done. But no, he still owns him. Um, and Matson did his little jig of victory. And uh, another great show is in the book. So do you, these sort of post-mortems are not super useful the day after. I think we need to understand mm-hmm. these things in the fullness of time. But what is your um, broad strokes feeling here about the show and also about where this ranks in terms of endings? I mean, for me, like, pretty high. I was not, like, I'm not a Game of Thrones watcher. and These last few years must have been brutal for you on this podcast. <laughs> um, I've never seen, like, Mad Men or Breaking Bad. You've never seen them? Well, I've seen Mad Men. I haven't watched through to completion and... Seen like a couple episodes of Breaking Bad, but wow. again, so I guess I feel like maybe I'm the wrong person to ask that. Um, <laughs> but you're here because I'm, I'm like, asking you. I'm like pretty good, <laughs> pretty yeah, good. I I think what I what I'm pretty into was again like this is such an unsentimental exercise. Yeah, we've talked a lot about how this was a deeply outsidery British show Trojan horsing its way into the American mainstream mm-hmm. by being about something that Americans as viewers are drawn to. Mm-hmm. But um, I think the rest of the world has a slightly different, more skeptical feeling about in mm-hmm. terms of just uh, capitalism and uh, ambition and money and the displays of money and power. Um, and it, I think, is really going to benefit from its relative brevity. Yeah, I think I that there's no real fat on the show. I think that even the, the the small struggle that I was trying to express about with Shiv's flip-flopping in this really brought it home to me that the show needed to end last night mm-hmm. because they could keep flip-flopping forever. And I think a lesser show wouldn't understand that that inability to be any one thing yeah. uh, isn't, a, isn't good for drama or isn't good for, like, relevance over the long term. Then you're just becoming cartoon characters that are in season nine of, you know, Then it starts to become program. predictable. Yeah, it, and so understanding that, that the show was about that void inside of them that they kept <laughs> desperately trying to fill. And I think in that light, like, are we going to miss the, all the scenes between these characters telling jokes that we won't get? Sure. 
but we have a ton of them. You know, the, the, I, I don't know if there's a more economical, like, you know, uh, uh, batting average. Like maybe 30 Rock is the only other show that has like <laughs> this kind of like just laugh per minute, yeah. memorable line per episode kind of hit rate. And it was kind of a tough mean little thing in the end in a way and I kind of I <laughs> yeah kind of I guess that. maybe that leads to me feeling less sentimental about mm-hmm. it ending so I'm like god these people were all pretty terrible to each other at the very end and so I don't it's hard for me to be like I'll miss this <laughs> yeah it had to it had to end because the 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 fullness of the of the creative act here was that it gave us people who were plausible to us who mm-hmm. behaved even though they said you know they spoke insanely but they their their motivations and their messiness and their inability to get out of, out of their own way is deeply compelling, deeply relatable, but also we we have enough of that in our own lives, right? Yeah. I I think there might be a whole new category for finales, which are appropriate. You know, I, yeah. I don't mean to be damning it with faint praise, but this was the right ending. It and, was, and and I you know again I haven't once we're done recording, I'm sure I'll dive into the discourse. And <laughs> for people who are still listening, we're not done talking about this show. Chris will be back later this week, and hopefully, we'll have a very special um, uh, conversation mm-hmm. where we can really get into some of the nitty gritty of it. I'm not going once things are confirmed, we'll let you guys know. But yeah, what a pleasure to talk about this show for this many years, and thank you, Kai, yeah. for talking to me about it. How are you feeling? Are you, how are your face eggs? <laughs> They're good. They're good. They're ready to watch some more Vanderpump and just, you know, have things told to me. Okay. Maybe we all deserve a break. So um, we are going to take a quick break. And then when we're back, um, Sean Fennessy mm-hmm. from the website The Ringer. I've heard of it. Yeah, it's not bad. Is yeah. going to join to talk about the Barry finale. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Okay, and we're back. Joining me now is a very old friend, 
someone who I believe works at TheRinger.com. I do. Uh, Sean Fennessy. Hi. Hi, Andy. Sean, it's great to have you in the studio. Often you visit us in the studio, but it's only to see if it's the room is free so you can make a phone call. Yes. Unfortunately, I'm here recording and not it's actually able to make a phone call. No, I'm, I'm blessed. I always say when I'm invited onto this show, this is my favorite podcast. So That's so nice. So happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, you. You're only here with half of it, or two-thirds of it, anyway. Yes. So we'll try to make it the worth your while. The good two-thirds. It's like Henry Hill, you know, the good half. I yeah. agree. Also, the, like, you know, the patriotic ones who really who stick things out in America. Yeah. Fuck. I mean, let's just come right out and say it. Fuck Chris. You know, he abandoned you for Paris. Thank you. It's brutal. It's brutal. I know. But you know what? Yeah. I'm here for you. Thanks, buddy. Just like ATN. <laughs> you we hear, here for you. You here for me. So... You're here specifically to talk about the Barry finale, which I feel like is the unappreciated stepchild of last night, yeah. um, unfairly so. But broadly, those were two huge, huge dramatic and creative statements back-to-back on the home max service, or whatever we're going to call it. <laughs> um, frankly, I mean, I don't think either were fairly served by that. I feel like I wish they had been staggered. But that said, it also made for a kind of interesting combo platter, I think, in terms of what we are as a people at this moment? Well, two two questions for you about this. One, was this just an Emmy window thing? Is that ultimately why these two shows were paired this way? It's a great question. I think um, it's definitely why they aired in this part of the year. I also think, and I have no inside knowledge of this, although maybe if I speak it into existence, um, like The Secret, I'll get a text from Casey explaining it. But I do believe that the, that even within the new Max Empire Casey Boys believes that HBO is a programmer and that they curate content. And so to have two crown jewels of this current era be on together, he made a night of programming that mm-hmm. is pretty unparalleled. And with a hundred foot wave, is really like pretty remarkable for this moment of fractured viewing. Yeah, I haven't even had a chance to watch Hundred Foot Wave yet. I think that it felt old fashioned yes. in a way that would have been appealing when we were not as, I don't know. IV chained to the discourse, yeah. but the succession discourse just got so loud so quickly. Yep. And I think rightfully so. I thought it was like a fascinating hour of television. You've already talked about it. I've already talked about it. I think it's going to be in the bloodstream for a while. Um, Barry it has become a different kind of show, in the, especially in the last two seasons, and a little bit less reliant on, did you see what happened to character X? Yes. And has become much more of a formal experiment. I think a much more daring mm-hmm. kind of show. And one that's not really well-suited to, OMG, here's my tweet. And so they're interesting paired together. That being said, both shows are tremendously cynical about the human spirit and the structures that we rely upon to be entertained. And the American experiment, I think to a really profound degree. They are both deeply soaked in the idea that the ends justify the means, always. That there, that we are a, a, a country of narratives, or narrative builders, and all it takes is the correct spin to become the hero of your own story, even though every other aspect of the world is screaming that you're the villain. So the thing that jumped out to me about Barry, and I think part of what makes it such a neat pairing with Succession's finale as well, is that it's a tale of two coasts. You know, mm-hmm. that ultimately Succession is an East Coast power show. It's a show about New York and D.C. And Barry is a show about characters coming to or returning to Los Angeles and having their souls ripped out of their bodies. I mean, the the, the whole idea in this finale was like, everyone is back yep. in this place, and this is where they take things from you. This is where you lose yourself. 
And I thought that was like really well told and really smart as a conception because, you know, the show's been kind of scattershot this season in terms of where it's been taking place. Yeah, I, I think it was also cumulative, right? Because I think the 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 remarkable story of Barry is that everybody wants to be told what they already believe about themselves. And they want to be forgiven or okayed or celebrated for that unique kernel inside of them that they feel has been underappreciated up to this point. And it never let its foot off the gas mm -hmm. in terms of there being consequences. You know, I, I think when Chris and I have talked about the show, we've touched on this, that there is a role that violence plays on this show. And it's interesting that the show is also can be broadly comic about violence as well. But violence is corrosive and violence, you cannot scrub it out. Um, I can't believe I'm referencing Macbeth when talking about Barry and we didn't say Shakespeare once, Kaya. We talked about <laughs> succession, but I'm sure Chris would have remedied that. He's a big Richard III guy. Um, and more than anything else in this finale, I just thought it brought home something so deeply, it's not just American, it's deeply Californian, right? That this idea that the trauma that makes us or defines us is can be or should be used as fuel as opposed to therapy, mm. <laughs> as opposed to uh, engaging with it, right? That it was somehow, it's, you can use it. And that came up again. And that was sort of, because we went back to an acting class. I'm, I'm, I'm all over the place because I'm still just suffused in the, in the finale of it. But like when older John is watching the Netflix movie of his parents' life, which is entirely wrong, we are back in an acting class for the first time since Sally took it over, but really since that first season. And I'm reminded, I don't know if it's a one-for-one -one dialogue thing, but the fake Cousineau is just like, use it. Use the thing, right? And that that was probably the single worst advice you could ever give to someone as broken as Barry Berkman, and here's where we are. Yeah, I like, the, too, that the the evocation of violence on this show, especially over time, has gotten less and less cool. You know, it is just, it is brutal and fast and unforgiving and unromantic. And it's cinematic, but not sexy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there were a couple of extremely violent moments in this episode. Um, There's, the, you know, the shootout between the two gangs, which is over in 30 seconds, even though it is kind of bravura filmmaking. Mm -hmm. Talk about that a little, little bit if you want. And then the conclusive moment for Barry, which is he when he's shot and just says, oh, wow. Yep. And then dies that's it and the kind of flatness and the kind of your you live and then you die feeling that i think a lot of people don't recognize is life until it comes to an end and there's not you know there, the moment that we see at the end that final three minutes where john is watching his dad's story his dad's fake story is never how things are and the whole mm -hmm. show was about kind of unearthing the lies that we tell ourselves to feel better and the way that like you know think back to barry romanticizing the way that he saved his friend mm -hmm. when he was in Afghanistan or think about the way that he thought about his friend Chris and their friendship and how they could reconnect and how that was all a lie. That's a little triggering for me today when my friend Chris <laughs> is so very far away, but yeah, I, we, I remember We love the Chris. When I said fuck Chris, I didn't mean it in the, in the I meant more like, like let's have, let's make love to Chris. Yeah. You know, like yeah. that's really what in I his was memory. thinking. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Did you murder Chris memory. in a car and make it look like a suicide? Is that why you're solo potting today? It's not murder. It was more like Shiv and Roman I joking about it. I see. That's why you have that big gash over your head right now. Could, could you give me a hug? <laughs> I thought it was, um, I wanted to ask you what you thought of basically the final third or quarter I, of the season because it was, it's been mm -hmm. such a radical shift from what I, it was. I love it so totally and completely. And I think that I underrated 
how incredible the show was over the course of its run. I think that it has been, the first season was a little bit noisier in, it got more press. It was a different moment in TV, even though it wasn't that long ago, chronologically, it won a bunch of Emmys. And it, I think, was an easier pill to swallow because it was funny. I mean, it's always been funny. And in fact, it's been, some of its funniest moments have been in these last few weeks. But it was more, you know, you could, it was more of a satire of Hollywood and acting and, um, and the Henry Winkler, Henry Winkler's performance, like, I think people were on board. Mm-hmm. And the next two seasons, I think, culturally were quieter, but no less good. And then now when I see the extent of it, I'm sort of floored by it on two levels. One, um, a complete television story that marched entirely to the beat of one kind of idiosyncratic drummer. We rarely see that kind of TV making anymore, even though we've spent a decade being like, this is what TV is going to be. Well, not really, and rarely this successfully. Mm -hmm. I also think in terms of just giving someone like Bill Hader the opportunity to learn and grow and develop and get to watch that happen. But also, I, I don't remember a show that has executed a tonal shift like this. So that this final season, to me, feels absolutely like um, the bill coming due on the first season. They feel of a piece. I've not rewatched it, but I, it, it seems that way to me. But yeah, to your point, I mean, it's shocking. It's shocking what a different show it is in so many ways. Um, but I just think it's, I, I'm kind of in awe of it. I, I, I almost am... I'm now talking around the fact that I haven't really found the words to describe my estimation of the show at this moment. It's It's been fascinating getting to talk to Bill Hader on a week-to-week basis over the last couple of seasons particularly. Because if if we had done those conversations in the first season, mm-hmm. and I think I might have interviewed Bill after the first season. I can't remember. I know that you guys spoke to him at one point. Bill and Henry came on the watch before they, right. they were flirting with us. It was just like internet dating, and then they found love with you. Well, we, we all love each other. In fact, he asked how you guys were doing when I last spoke with him. Aww. But nevertheless... I think if a lot of whatever I would wanted to know from him from the first season would have been kind of a misread of his intentions about writing comedy, Mm -hmm. you know, that that would have been where my mind would have gone. And it was pretty clear from the first couple of episodes of the third season that he had kind of abandoned the expectations of the audience and that he was telling the story he wanted to tell. I would ask all these leading questions about, is this what you were trying to say while we were doing the podcast? And he would almost every time would say like, no, that wasn't what I was thinking. (laughs) Here's what I was thinking, and it's all about being true to the character, being true to the mm-hmm. writing and being honest about the character's intentions. And he was almost like a broken record when he would talk about it. And I think we, he and I will eventually you know, talk about the final three episodes on the show again. But he had a much more kind of like monastic philosophical approach to the show that feels very in line with like if you know some of his heroes, like the Coen brothers. Mm-hmm. It felt very Coen brothers to me where there was this convergence of tonal mastery and a kind of daring in the kind of physical execution of the production mm-hmm. that is very rare, very hard to pull off. As you say, in TV, like, more or less doesn't exist because it's such a collaborative medium. Yes, I think we there are, there are shows that are idiosyncratic in this way, in this sort of cinematic auteurist way. Um, but they're even they are just, it's hard to say they're auteurist because there are a lot of people at the party. You mentioned Coen Brothers, and like, I, it is a fair comparison. It's not to say that, seasons three and four of Barry are as good as a Coen Brothers film or of a David Lynch film. But there's a confidence in the work of those filmmakers where they give you something that is absolutely hilarious to them or that is absolutely horrifying, scary to them, or something that makes sense to them that you would never 
you and I would never think of, let alone ChatGPT, and they just present it to you and you feel the truth in it, if that makes sense. You understand that there is a intellectual and creative and emotional consistency to this, even if it doesn't make sense to you. And I feel like that's what Bill Hader was giving us over these last two seasons, particularly this season, more than any other, where the decisions that he made were not predictable by any normal storytelling metric. And not just the decisions in terms of the characters, but in terms of, as you were alluding to with the shootout, the framing, the shots that he would set up, uh, the way he approached getting in and out of scenes. But you were being told a story by someone who absolutely knew what he wanted to say. And that is that rare feeling that's hard to describe. The last episode that we talked about was episode five, which was the one that essentially takes place entirely in the home after um, After Barry and Sally have moved in the time jump. And he said that that was the episode that he was most proud of, that that was the episode he thought was the funniest, which I think most people thought was the most off-putting and kind of bracing and disorienting. And I kept asking him David Lynchian questions about disorientation of the audience. And he was like, this is fucking hilarious to me that that Barry, you know, watched YouTube videos about Abe Lincoln and these are his takeaways. And I think it's exactly, I think you nailed it. It is that this is an honest representation of what Bill thinks is funny, of what he thinks is right for these characters. And I think, you know, I think it's fair to say, this is my read on it, but I think it's fair to say that he has used the the last two seasons as a kind of like live pin board for his ideas to kind of work out some things he wants. You know, that that episode to me, episode five, was like a Bergman movie. You know, Mm -hmm. it was like close quarters, a kind of weird like psychosexual mania happening between the characters, all very unspoken, a little bit absurdist funny, but also Mm -hmm. kind of horrifying. I don't, he probably wouldn't put words to it like that, but he was like, I'm going to try a style, mm-hmm. you know, the same way that Ronnie Lilly was a style, the same way that the great car chase in season three was a style mm-hmm. of filmmaking. So even this final episode, I felt like was him exercising modes of style or commenting like, you know, there's this moment in the final episode where Barry, after he's escaped, goes to back to the you know, department store and buys a lot of guns. <laughs> and, and finally by C.C. Peniston is plastic. <laughs> yes. And on his way out, I think it's uh, more than words by extreme. And he's marching through the department store and he's got the guns strapped to his back. And it's James Cameron. It's just a Terminator shot. It's it's just pure 80s action cinema. And then... And no one notices. And no one cares. And the, the greeter actually turns and looks yeah. at the camera smiling as mm-hmm. he exits wearing these AK-47s. And, you know, then there's that great, like, cutaway classic absurd Coen Brothers moment where he gets into the car while, while swearing the guns, which was just hilarious. But everything that transpires after that is not like a funny payoff mm-hmm. on that setup. In fact, Barry never fires any of those guns. Yep. And that that is, I think, the part, the point of the storytelling, which is that there's no hero narratives here. There's not a rescue. In fact, it's Fuchs who releases the child yep. to Barry in the episode as he recognizes that he has erred in the way that he raised Barry as mm-hmm. a father figure. So it's just, a, I thought, I think a very insightful show about human relationships, a very audacious show in its filmmaking, and still funny. But I do think it's a little more divisive than it was, say, after season two, when people were just like, well, this is just one of the best shows on television. Oh, it's definitely divisive because it it, it did completely commit to the brain of one person. I mean, he directed this entire season. I think that's a, a great thing. And historically, I've not always thought that, mm-hmm. especially in TV. Before we get into the specifics of the finale, I did want to ask you about your insight into Bill Hader just as a filmmaker here, because there's no question. He said this from the beginning. He said this in interviews. He's he's a film nerd. Like, this is what moves him, is the great movies and, like, sitting in rooms and watching them and thinking about them, something you can relate to. Yes. Um, we have a lot to talk about, Bill and I. He has used this opportunity so beautifully, and not in a selfish way because he gave us this show, but what he has become as a filmmaker is significant, mm-hmm. I think. And 
should he choose to make movies as he said that he would like to do, I'm, I'll be first in line. Well, I, won't, I, I won't be first in line for everything. I'm too old now. But you know what I mean. I can't wait well, to see them. I wonder, though, because and, I think a lot of people have been saying in recent weeks, where is Bill Hader's horror movie? Yeah. And like, will you will will Andy Greenwald line up for the horror movie? Well, there's horror movies and then there's horror movies. Okay. Like, I will see a Jordan Peele movie. Okay. I will not see Skinnamarink. Um, I've never said that out loud. I fact, w- does, I, that, does that cause the Skinnamarink to come to the studio if I say it a third time? I will pay you uh-huh. a crisp okay. $100 American bill. Right. If you see currency and pod with Chris about it. Just $100 cash Let, because I want to hear your thoughts. I would like to bring in Bill the Sports Guy Simmons and <laughs> Jeff Chow. And if they would like to formalize this agreement for quite a bit more money... <laughs> For the podcast, we Andy watches horror movies. 10x, 100x. I'm on strike. <laughs> so You're on strike from watching Skinnamarink? No, apparently that's the one thing that I'm going to be doing. Um, but so this idea that he's going to make a movie, I'm sure he will, and I can't wait to see it. But I hope, I hope that this series wasn't just his minor league taken reps. Because I think that what he's done in terms of TV storytelling is significant within the realm of TV storytelling. And I think that there are aspects of this framework that he's really suited to. And when you think about, you were, you were saying that he, he's, you know, character first, et cetera, et cetera. His love and respect for these actors and for their characters and for taking a show that there's no world in which he saw this specific ending when he was writing the characters in season one. I mean, famously, Noho Hank was killed in the pilot before yep. he changed his mind. That kind of, what can I make with these broken toys that I've either inherited or created without much thought, and then servicing them, that's the best of TV to me. Yeah, it's a testimony to the pretty incredible cast that he, I'm sure in some ways, devised and strategized for, and in other ways, kind of stumbled upon. But if you look at Sarah Goldberg, Henry Mm -hmm. Winkler, you know, if you look at Stephen Root, if you look at Anthony Kerrigan, that being like kind of the core Mm -hmm. of the show, all basically doing the best work that they've ever done. We've kind of effectively discovered Sarah Goldberg and Anthony mm-hmm. Kerrigan as viewers on this show. Noho Hank became kind of the emotional heartbeat of the show throughout mm-hmm. the last couple of seasons. I thought he was fantastic in this final episode. And I think you're right. I think he fell in love with these actors. I think he felt very close to them and he wanted to kind of write to them and to their strengths. I think he it, he is a very good TV writer and director. I selfishly want to see it on the biggest canvas. You know, yeah. I want to see it in a movie format and I've told him that. And I think he knows that, and I think he will do it. But you're right that this is a unique execution. There is a little bit of, like, end-of-the-century feeling that I have, though, with this show and with Succession, where I know there's been a lot of talk, mm-hmm. like, is Succession the last prestige, great prestige show? And some of it came from this room. I know. You and Chris have discussed it, and I, in many ways, I, I kind of agree, at least, with some of the sentiments that you have shared about that. But Barry, too, is kind of from a bygone era yeah, and allowing not just the show getting greenlit because I think that that premise would be greenlit this, on this day an ex-SNL you know writer-director mm-hmm. who's a very um, ambitious filmmaker but letting, the, letting him go where he took it felt feels different now it feels like we're in an age of austerity and because of that we are I think how do, how do we like kind of recognize the boldness that both of these shows really pulled off their finales with um, I, I, it's exciting and a little a little sad yeah, and specifically if you look at HBO, which is still the the hallmark, it's still the it's still the the crown jewel of this sort of thing, but both of these shows are very much products of the way they used to do business. It doesn't mean that they won't do business this way again, but 
you know, famously, Succession came out of a very long, very old, old world HBO model, which is they were interested in the money space. They wanted to make a show about wealth and about New York City. Right. R.I.P. David Milch's legendary exactly. idea. Yeah, that was the first one that they went down the rabbit hole with. Was a show called Money that David Milch created with um, uh, Ian McShane. I think was the mm-hmm. star of it. I'm sure there were countless other takes and scripts and pilots because they just used to do that. They would just spend as much time as it took in development until mm-hmm. they found the right thing. It ended up being the Adam McKay relationship who reached out to the this, this British comedy writer and suddenly we end up with this show that also had no stars. It had really good actors and many of whom now have become stars. And that is also the old HBO model. The other part of the HBO development model used to be, yeah, we're going to land this highbrow a kind of splashy, flashy thing. Mm-hmm. We're going to get a famous comedy guy and he's going to do this thing and and we're going to let him do it. We're going to give him the space to be creative and free. I would like to think that both of those things are still possible in this new world. And you're right to say austerity because, you know, we don't even know how the strike is going to resolve. But one thing everybody agrees on on both sides is there's going to be less TV now. Yeah. There's, there, and there almost has to be. That's not for, for both creative and financial reasons, but there's going to be less. But the marketplace is going to look different too. That's, that's of part of what's so interesting to me about these final two episodes is that I think they distinguish themselves despite the fact that they arrive at a time when there's never been more. Mm-hmm. And now we know there may never be this much again, mm-hmm. or at least until, you know, as long as you're, I don't know, podcasting about television, presumably, like the boom that we saw in the last yeah. five to 10 years is there something was unsustainable. You know that strange. I don't know. Is uh, my, my not gonna be, <laughs> am I switching to the horror movie beat? I have bad news, Andy. You have to retire in 2039. That, that was written into your contract on the last page. That's fine. Also, it's, it's so cute. You think I have a contract? Um, <laughs> I, I do. I do. Uh, I think that, I mean, tell, tell me about what you thought about like this, uh, this yeah. episode particularly because it was kind of, again, formally different. Yeah, it was formally different, but it also was... I, 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 again, I feel like I'm dancing around talking about the specifics of it because, as I said at the beginning of the show when Kai and I were talking about Succession, like, watching finales feels weird it, it, in, in my body. And I imagine it's true for a lot of people. Not just because I know I have to podcast about them, but because, you know, everything feels feels more formal and important because this is the last one and it's the last statement. And I think that's also connected to that psychological feeling of struggle, which is we feel ownership over these shows and we want them to do certain things or be certain things or just be around in the finale. And I've said this before is that's the moment the creator rests it back Mm -hmm. and says, no, no, it was this. That said, I thought that what Bill did this season was so remarkable because it never let us settle. It was three shows this season. And the show that ended last night was the show that kind of began in episode six of this season. If you think of the first four as one and five as kind of its own thing. So I felt ready, if that makes sense, because all of the pieces were set up to, all the dominoes were set up. And so this was going, I, I kind of knew that it was going to be a dominoes fall episode. Which it, which it was. I, I was still surprised and caught off guard throughout, but I was, I don't even know if this was your question, but I feel very cared for by the thought of it, which was, was I okay with this? And I felt good. I felt, I felt uh, prepared for it. Yeah, I, I, I did too. I thought that it was, there was an inevitability around Barry's demise yes. from maybe season one, maybe even episode one, that this mm-hmm. was a character who couldn't sustain and that Everything that he did through those four seasons essentially wrecked the lives of every single person around him. I mean, I thought that the decision to make Kusinau the the ultimate fall guy yeah. was this 
really fascinating representation of the way that Hollywood distorts the truth of everything. You know, Hayter has talked quite a bit in the conversations that we've had about really watching a lot of true crime documentaries and that that's something that he and his family have in common and that's like easy for him to watch. And yeah. he doesn't watch a lot of series television, but he watches stuff like that. And so it was kind of satisfying to watch the dumb shit docudrama version of this yeah. story to conclude this and for Kusinow to just sort of like in a, in a misshapen way be blamed and for Barry to be valorized because we're so desperate to think of certain people as misunderstood and mm-hmm. other people as kind of craven and evil and mm-hmm. people who seem nice or devious and people who are, seem troubled are actually sweet souls. And the just kind of the flip on that storytelling well, I thought was so smart. Also the power dynamic, right? Because Barry, there's a version of it where Barry is a soldier. He's loyal and he's easily manipulated because he's just a screwed up kid who bad things happen to. When... <laughs> That may not be the correct read of the situation. No, I, he's a full-blown sociopath. He's a sociopath. He's, he's disturbed. I also think um, one of the unique things about the show, and I think it's connected to the fact that it is auteurist, that the person playing the part is also the writer and creator of the part and the director of it. But I don't know of a single other example where, of a, a show where the creator-writer had less sympathy for the lead character than this. Um, this came out a lot in your conversations with Bill. It's come out in other interviews he's done. I mean, he doesn't valorize Barry. He thinks he's fucking psychopath. He hates, he, in some ways he hates him or he thinks he's evil. He thinks he's bad. Yeah. He has a judgment on him. Yes. Usually when you hear actors talk, whether it's Brian Cox who talks a lot or <laughs> certainly Jeremy Strong or any of these other actors from Succession who are on our mind, they, are, they will always say the work of an actor is to find the humanity and to play the humanity, to mm-hmm. play the, the hero of the story, even if that's not how, how it appears to the viewer when it's all cut together. Uh, Hater plays the humanity of Barry, but he fucking disparages and loathes him, right? I, you know, it's hard to say if he loathes him. I think it's probably a combination of things. I think that he's very, he's unwell. This is like a psychopathic killer. Yeah, I, sh- I should separate that because yeah. he, 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 he passes judgment about his, his, his morality, about yes. his mental health. He should pay for what he's done, which is he's destroyed lives. He's yes. murdered people in cold blood. And he's very frank about that. I do think that there is a little bit of relationship between Succession and Barry too here in that there is like a little bit of a product of your environment, product of your circumstances mm-hmm. aspect going into the storytelling. I think what's interesting about that though is that, and this is purely my read on it. It's not anything that Bill has said. I just think he got a little bored with Barry. Yeah, I and think that's probably true too. Barry wasn't really in this season as much as in previous seasons. In fact, I think it was maybe episode three or four after he broke out of prison. He's not in the episode. And so even in this final episode, I mean, he really is not in this episode. He has very few lines of dialogue. He buys guns. Mm-hmm. He retrieves his son. He goes to sleep with his wife. And then he gets shot the next morning. I mean, he doesn't really do anything in this episode. He's also deluded. And how much further can that go? You know, I, I, it, it, I mean, obviously we're going to be prone to, to twin it with succession at this point, but it, it, it reminds me of something that Kai and I were talking about, which is Roman dramatically was done before this finale. You know, there was no more road. It would just be another reversal and a reversal and a reversal, but he was done. He'd reached the end of it uh, in terms of his, his use of this story. And I feel like Hayter probably felt something similar here. I mean, he thought that he was going to, you know, die for Christ saving his son. Mm-hmm. But as you pointed out a moment ago, that's not how any of this goes. Um, it's also interesting that Hayter, you know, became famous for playing characters very briefly in sketch comedy, right. you know, and then right. moving on and returning to characters sometimes, but never settling in too long. Um, and there's also probably just the labor of like 
directing everything. And wasn't seemingly an actor who was interested in leading man type parts because he was like a tall, handsome guy. He could have done much more conventional kind of rom-coms and things like that. And he didn't really pursue that. He doesn't have that vanity, I think, either. Yeah, I I, I just don't think he thinks that that would be fun for him Mm -hmm. or or intellectually interesting for him. But I think also to your point earlier, he got really interested in writing Sally. He got really interested in writing Noho Hank. He got really interested in writing more about Fuchs. And so because of that, you're just seeing those actors more. You're just seeing those stories more. I think Sally in particular is kind of like the achievement of the show in many ways. And, you know, it's there was actually a note in Alan Seppenwall's review that I thought was interesting, which is that he struggled a little bit with ending the show with John. That John is mm-hmm. a new character who we just met three episodes ago. And that Sally seemed like a better place in mm-hmm. Alan's view to kind of end the show because we have so much invested in her. Mm-hmm. We understand her so deeply. I didn't really have an issue with it because I actually like the idea of kind of like what we pass down to our kids. That's a mm-hmm. big theme of a lot of shows. And as you know, I'm a little bit racked by that these days. But um, I was curious like what you thought about how they handled Sally at the end of the show. Um, well, first of all, I think you're right. I think the Sally character and Sarah Goldberg's performance are incredible. I think it's probably worth highlighting. If people haven't seen, there's a great piece in the LA Times. It's like a cast roundtable and what came out of that. I'm sure it's been covered elsewhere. It was just... Bill's care for these performers and his interactions with them where basically, according to Sarah Goldberg, he asked her where she wanted to go after season one. And she was like, I want to be, I want to do a woman under the influence. And that's how she ends up in that bathroom scene. Amazing. Similarly with, with Steven Root, he was like, I want you to be a a sexy killer. And he's (laughs) like, I don't do that. And here, here it is. Um, I think that the way it ended was again, it was that same thing where I'm like, I'm in someone else's head now. They're not writing to me. I'm going on a trip with them and I trust them. And that's what the great filmmakers do. And that's why Bill Hader may end up being a great filmmaker, honestly, for that reason alone, that you're willing to trust the driver on that journey. I think that what he did here with this end was tell us what he wanted the show to mean, right? The the scene where Sally basically accepts being a mother for the first time after you know, horrifically uh, drugging her son with alcohol, but in the previous episode, and then, you know, treating him like an unwanted appendage when she turns to him. And again, this is another example of the really interesting directorial framing where we're watching that scene from John's POV and Sally's turning to us. That's not a very standard, even actors don't even want to do that sometimes. Like this isn't a comfortable place to have my body. Mm. So I think there was intentionality behind that where she's like, here's the truth. I am bad. Your father's bad. You're not bad she abdicated her her primacy in a way. You know, the story really was about the corrosive effects of violence and how it just permeates everything. And so they end up in this kind of like Bedford Falls, right? Like everything's, uh, the snow is almost fake looking and she, she just gets asked out by a handsome new AP teacher and she's doing what she loves most and she's getting flowers. And by the way, credit to her too, because there's just no vanity in it. Like even when she's, She's playing Sally with her happy ending and there's a cravenness in her eyes. Yeah. You know, because the, yeah. the clapping is for her. Uh-huh. I think it was fitting to end with the legacy and the lies. You know, I thought that I thought that was appropriate, but I, I'm 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 trying to formulate my answer in real time because I think as a TV fan, I think Alan's right. Or I think in a traditional writer's room mentality, that's correct. Right. You want to end with who you've spent the time with you understand their journey in a different way. And so it feels more comfortable and fitting. But I I also think that he, I I think that Bill Hader is a vengeful God. You know, I think it's almost religious in that they've abdicated their right to have 
their story. Well, okay, a couple of things about the final five minutes. One, Jim Cummings plays Barry Berkman in that final, the Netflix movie, as you said, of the story. I love Jim Cummings. I profiled Jim Cummings like five or six years ago. He made a very small independent movie called Thunder Road, which I thought was fantastic. The way that it was financed was very interesting. It was like, the, to me, the perfect kind of artistic and business story, which is like, mm-hmm. that's ultimately my interest in this space is like yeah. how these two things fit together. And I love Jim. He's such an energetic person. I've interviewed him a, a bunch of times and he is majestically cast as the the good Barry Berkman. Like yeah. I thought that that was such a clever move on, on Hader's part. I did think, though, that the ultimate lesson, and this is such a fascinating thing to come from a person who has been as so, as successful as Bill Hader has mm-hmm. been, is that this business destroys you. Like yes. It, you're an aspiration to get in, involved in this, and you you yourself are in this business. Mm-hmm. Like it well, is, I'm on strike, but... It yeah. is, well, in the grand scheme mm-hmm. of things, you've been in it. And it is a life of rejection. It is a life mm-hmm. of block. It is a life of failure. It is a life of confusion. And that even the most successful people in the world are deeply insecure and unhappy. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, maybe it's a little bit of a small world view if you, you know, live in Minnesota and just want to laugh about the Hitman TV show. But I think it's a very human understanding of how anything that you want in life is not all it's cracked up to be. Mm-hmm. That's basically what the ending of the show was. It's just like, you know, this is all a lie. Everybody who's pretending to be successful or triumphant or the hero is not. And let's just get on with our day. Like that that ultimately felt like what he was trying to say. Yeah. And that um, who does the truth matter to? It matters to the people who are in the rooms. But beyond that, what what is what are the limits of our humanity and empathy about it? Right? Like this was a better story and people seem to enjoy it and it's doing well. And and also just the, the sort of the low-key dynamics of that scene, which is that she, he's sneaking out to do this and his friend is like you have to no you need to see this man this is cool Mm -hmm. um and and you know what's interesting about that last shot and the the last images of john's face is like what is the legacy that he's going to get from his father is it hopefully it's not um murdering but is it (laughs) hopefully not is it that um there's magic in telling your true story and coming out to hollywood and like you know is He's he's beaming in that light, in that reflected light, and that doesn't seem that healthy. Uh, it's very possible that it all gets passed down. I mean, that also is the lesson of succession, that a lot of these things are just passed down. Maybe not the skills, but the feelings, the pain, the frustration, the anxiety, the trauma. Like, all that stuff gets passed down. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that was challenging for me as a parent, and probably you as a, as a parent as well, in this season was, like, most shows don't put children in those rooms for scenes like the ones that these last few episodes contained. Most shows will find a way to keep John out of the bloodbath and the horrific aftermath of the bloodbath, just so, or it's only about that. Mm -hmm. Because an eight-year-old child just saw and experienced that level of fear and violence. Barry intentionally did the opposite almost gleefully so like he like the, having Sally give him a screwdriver in the middle of the day while their ho- her house almost gets lifted off the fucking foundations by the dude in a gimp costume <laughs> it's an all-timer um special show it it is it's it's a real one i mean that is that is a lot it is a lot to unpack it's a lot to consider and it was intentional yeah. you know that he was like this is the world that this child is living in and he's real he's not 
a figment of Barry's imagination. This wasn't like some sort of dream sequence, time jump. Like, he did this. I, li- I liked what you said, too, about the fact that it's not just about the kid's trauma. Mm-hmm. Like, that wasn't the purpose of the mm-hmm. show was how this violence does this to this boy and that we need to focus on his psychology. It is in, it is in the aftermath of it, of course. And the film, you know, the show, the film, see what I did there? Yeah. The show ending on his face is intentional, but we don't even know where he is during the shootout because Fuchs is sitting on top of him Fuchs and covering on top him. Of him yeah. And you're look, I'm scanning as mm-hmm. that shootout takes place and I'm looking at the screen and I'm like, where is John? Where's John? Where's Sally? Where's Where's John? And you can't see him in a way because of what you're describing, that that intentionality. So I thought it was, you know, really uncompromising, even by the standards of one of the most uncompromising shows of the last 10 years. And I do think that some people will say that was weird, but that was kind of the point, you know, that there was a a purposeful displacement of your expectations. I feel like, again, there's no point in these sorts of predictions, especially like less than 24 hours after the show. Uh, concluded. But I just have this feeling that this show is significant, not just because it was artistically significant to me, but is this, and again, it's both can exist, both Succession and Barrier are all-time great shows worthy of discussion, but I'm, I'm almost more curious about the influence tree, the coaching tree, if you will, mm. of Barry than I am of Succession. Because I think that the the lessons of Succession might not be repeatable, both creatively but also economically, of, you know, these are world-class writers being given world-class actors with a galaxy-sized budget. And so my lesson from that is writing matters, that, like, we should steer into non-superhero stuff and let weirdos come in from other countries or other perspectives and play in these more, you know, mainstream sandboxes. Sure. Yeah, I want that. Mm-hmm. But but is Barry the, like, giving your little brother a Velvet Underground album? You know, and then seeing what happens in 20 years, there's something that is just so aesthetically uncompromising about it. And it's so odd. And it's, I think its oddness makes it even more relevant to our contemporary moment and condition because it never once tried to take the mantle. There was no presidential election going on in the background of, of season four of Barry. Right. It, it spoke to themes, not contemporary events. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a difference between those two things. I, I like having both. I'm I'm trying to sort through what you just said. I've liked how you've talked about the show throughout this season, which is that like landing on the idea that this was sort of like there a lot of people work on the show and, and Bill is very generous about mm-hmm. identifying the work that they do, but this is really his vision. And then he's doing a lot of the pure work. He's doing a lot of the writing and directing every episode, as you said. And so that to me is the thing where I wonder if that actually will be a legacy. And I don't know if TV can support that. You might yeah. understand that better than I can, but someone coming in with such a sheer force of will and knowing what we know about the state of Hollywood, where the $15 million movie is just so hard to get off the ground, maybe it's better to take a really sharp, saleable pitch mm-hmm. and then bend your ideas around it so that you can make something powerful that you want to. As long as you are as, like, you know, bull confident as someone like Hater is to execute on your vision. I don't know if that's possible, though. I, I don't know if it's possible either. I think I'm, I think I, I struggle with articulating it because generally, this sort of collaborative, let's, we can't be perfect, so let's just do the best we can. Ethos that was true in both magazines, as we remember it, but also in television, that's what I like about it. Mm-hmm. And what I admire and revere about movies is it's not that, honestly. Like you have a shot to make something that is definitive and you do your best, and sometimes that you can levitate, you know. I, I think that, um, yeah, I think it is not really repeatable. I think one of the things that's unique about Barry, and there are many things, 
is that the shows that I want to compare it to in terms of just like singularly idiosyncratic auteurist visions, especially recently, haven't also been narratively propulsive and finite. And what I mean by that is, what do I want to compare it to? Atlanta? Uh, reservation Dogs? Can I tell you what I've been thinking of? Yeah. The Office UK? Sure. Yeah. Savage and Brief. Yeah. That is the, that is the show that it reminded me of the most. Where as I was watching that show in real time, even with a little bit of the hype of like, you got to see this, I couldn't believe how bold the storytelling was and how willing Gervais was to be unlikable. Yes. And also willing to move the camera away from him at times Mm -hmm. to move it to other characters who he felt mattered. Mm -hmm. And then also to end when it was time to end. Um, I always admired that. It's obviously like that show is insanely influential on our culture now when you look at what comedy is. But that was a tough show. It was unafraid to be kind of mean. And it wasn't as violent as Barry, but it had a kind of like emotional violence. And that's the one that's been kind of clicking in my mind, which is a little bit of a pre-prestige era show. No, I think that's a great comparison. I I think the reason why I struggle trying to compare it to something like uh, Atlanta is because I do think similarly there was a completely wholly realized aesthetic vision and purity that existed in that show. But I think that for me, the crucial difference is the lesson of Atlanta is that it could be anything and it could go anywhere. Ultimately, and I don't even mean this pejoratively, it didn't really go anywhere. Right, right. Whereas Barry went from A to Z. It it, it ended, you know, yeah. it ended a story. It didn't just tell a lot of stories and then, you know, peace out in kind of a cool way. Yeah, Barry was like a picaresque and, and Atlanta was like a collection of short stories ultimately mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. But they shared Hero Mirai. Never forget wow. the hero Mariah. Great point. You know, like conceptualized a lot of the look of both of those shows, and that hero was a huge collaborator of haters in the mm-hmm. early days of that show. And I know, I know, hater has a lot of respect for him, and obviously he's essential to the to making Atlanta as well. So I think they're smartly paired. That's that's a very good observation. So what do you think from your insights and from your conversations with Bill Hader? What what do you think? Well, I guess it's a two-part question. What do you think he'll do next? And what would you want him what do you want him to do next as of a fan? Of course I want him to make a movie. I mean, I'm desperate. I would much prefer to speak to him about the movie that he made in mm-hmm. great detail. I mean, it is my dream to do the podcast version of a mo- the making of a movie mm-hmm. in the way that we did about this. But you know, I wasn't with Bill Hader when he was making the show. Creative people, you know, they they retreat because it's so hard to do the work, as you know, having made a show, that like you almost, you need a lot of focus. I would love to see like the TikTok of the making of a film. And by TikTok, you mean in the traditional journalistic sense, not the Chinese malware video (laughs) app. No, although a credit to TikTok for correctly predicting the conclusion of succession and the Tom Wamsgans triple play they did. Yeah, you missed that? Yeah. There was a a young woman. This this had been floating around on the internet, but there was a young woman. I can't, Kaya, do you have any idea what the, what her focus is? Is it like baby names for her account? Did you see this? Oh yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's like predicting celebrity or like influencer baby names. Right. And then I, I don't know if this is related. I saw like a stray tweet that like a baseball player named Wham's Gams had done like a triple play. What? In the 1920s. And that this account essentially like collated all of these, this theory together and pitched it on TikTok and it went massively viral a day before wow. the, the, the premiere of the finale. And the suggestion is that Tom did a triple play by knocking out the three kids. Whoa. Yeah. Man, maybe I should get back online. You're making it sound pretty cool. I think you should leave podcasting, but go full in on TikTok. Like, just just fully develop your brand Speaking there. of Sean Wamsgans here, you've got Chris out. You just knocked me out. 
Kaya, be careful. <laughs> I want Bill Hader to make a movie. Um, I I think he will. I mean, who knows? Like, movies are very fucked up right now. Yeah. I know television is very complicated, but the movie business is a mess. And like, is that because Thunderbolts has has delayed filming? Is that um, right? You know, everything is obviously on on pause. I saw The Little Mermaid last night uh, immediately after watching Succession yeah, and recording that's with Bill. Unhinged. That you uh, did that. It was the only time I had to do it, you know? So I, I used that time wisely. I that, think that film was two and a half hours. Had to do it is also an interesting, it's doing a lot of work there, but go on. You yeah. know what's so funny is I was like, well, we're going to do a Little Mermaid episode, so I got to go see this movie. And then I saw the movie and I was like, I don't really want to talk about this movie. Let's figure something else out. So, you know, that is that is doing the work in a way. What yeah. do you think Bill's going to do? What do you want him to do? Oh, I think he'll, I think he'll make a movie. And I think that he's going to have a long and exciting career. I mean, I, I, I don't, I, and I think that makes sense. I think that's what he's always, like, you know him better than I do, but I think that seems like what he's always wanted to do. And I think that, you know, generally people like him when they have the opportunity to recede from being in front of the camera to focus on these other things, that's what they do. Yeah. Um, which is also a shame because I think he's an incredible performer. Um, but Maybe I, some Todd Field uh, shades there where he's like, I'm done oh. with performing, but I want to be telling stories. Todd Field gave up not only acting, but also um, playing jazz music. That is a fact. Yeah. And um, he had already invented Big League Chew. So also, at that point, what was a, good. What a graceful podcaster Sean is because he just managed to steer it into the one movie that I saw and loved <laughs> in the last 10 years. I did know Tar. you loved Tar. <laughs> I love Tar so much. I have a whole big theory about Tar in movies, but I'm actually going to talk about that on The Big Picture, which is the show that I host. Andy. Oh, interesting. Is yeah. that um, that's Barstool? What, who makes that yeah, show? It's on Barstool. We've been at Barstool for about 10 years, so cool. we're celebrating our 10-year anniversary. It's very exciting. Congratulations. Thanks. No, I just feel like Amanda's a good like cultural fit over there, too, the two of you. So that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I I don't know. I we there we have many many miles of podcasting still to do in front of us, but not today. <laughs> but it just sounds so daunting. Generally, sometimes it is. <laughs> it, but it's just more. I do feel a little bit. This might be recency bias, but this idea that these both of these shows ended at the same time and what they represent at a moment when both for professional reasons, but then also for just being a fan of the medium reasons, I feel like TV is very much in flux. I, I it. I, it's hitting me in a heavy way, in a heavy way today. You know, when you think about what has been greenlit, like it's just these small things that that can add up to a larger story. But you'll be back in this seat mm-hmm. one week from today, yeah. speaking about the idol. Oof, boy, I think I'm going to go to Paris. I think I need a vacation. <laughs> I'm very, very. I, I think I feel about the idol the way you feel about the Little Mermaid. The idol already went to Paris. The yeah, idol premiered at Cannes, and now it, it has returned to the states. So you'll be. You'll be reversing the idea. That's because its ideas were just too goddamn dangerous <laughs> to be in this country. Um, well, we'll actually be back. That's like, thank you for setting. See, you're so good at this. You're setting me up. You said it was Barstool. I should I should subscribe. Yeah, check it out. Um, we will be back uh, this week. Talking Succession. Chris will be back. I think we have a very special show planned that I won't step on, but I'm excited. Uh, I think you guys will be excited too. So the great work goes on. You know, some soldiers fall along the way, like like Lieutenant Colonel Berkman or whatever. Is- I believe you. PFC, PFC. Yeah. I, I'm a big, big military guy. I, I'm the one that got Logan's medals because that's just, I'm passionate about. Sean, thank you it for was an joining honor. me. It was uh, an honor. This is a big episode. A lot of people are going to be listening and unfortunately they have to hear me. I just want to say that I love Chris. I, I think worried. Chris is, I, you know, I just, the CR heads, they're dangerous. You got to be careful. For, for what it's worth, Chris, while Sean and I were talking, Chris was sending me, um, uh, joke texts about Nan Pierce um, <laughs> and, the, and, and the whole Pierce deal. What happens deal. to PGN? I, who owns it? Does, did Nan 
Is she stuck with the bag now? She's she just has to deal did, with. Did she get the bag? Well, like, that, well I assume not because Shiv's not going to chip in her fortune, right? Also, that was all like what five days ago. <laughs> so she probably doesn't even know like that Logan died. Like I feel like a PGN would have reported. Is Nan it. dead? What are we supposed to think? Nan, I I think maybe we think about her like we think about all of them. They're all rich. <laughs> So true. It's just gradations it's li- of rich. Literally, who cares? That's yeah. my my final response. And I do think that is part of the meta story of it. Like I think <laughs> no, we, we we could go on about succession forever, but I I've always thought that the fact that the show was written by a c- cynical uh British, probably socialist, or at least socialist <laughs> by American political standards, was underreported. You know, I d- I just feel like the audience that thought they were watching more billions just maybe they weren't getting that message until last night's finale we were we were aligned on that fact and i'm glad it played out that way and uh, i just want to say to everybody who's trying to tell me on the internet that tom won the show yes. needs to um go climb into a cave because that's an insane take <laughs> that's where we started kaya and i like if that last night's finale had a lot of work to do but if it only did one thing and it was to just explicitly neutron bomb the who's gonna win <laughs> You think did did you watch the do you think he won? <laughs> Jesus. It's tough. It's tough. Life is about more than wins and losses, which we know as fans of teams in the NL East. All I can say is that on this podcast, yeah. Kaya won. Kaya won. Kaya, thank you so much for all that you did today, producing, filling in, sharing your thoughts, putting up with us. We appreciate it. I'm transferring all of the watches IP to my name. <laughs> I think it should have always been there. Now, I underlined your name, but Chris crossed it out. So, see you guys later in the week. 